You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. We'll get started with our scripture reading for this morning. We'll start in the New Testament in Acts 5. Once you get to Acts 5, would you please stand out of reverence for God's word? We will read each of these scripture readings, and after the fact, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Would you please respond with a hearty, thanks be to God. So it's Acts 5, 27 to 42. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Now would you turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 22. We'll read the latter half of the chapter, starting in verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me, to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. 
And the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I, know, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all these persons, of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, you've given us precepts and laws. You've given us Proverbs, you've given us psalms to pray and to sing, and Lord, you've also given us stories. Pray, God, that you would teach us to hear your stories rightly, to learn what we ought to learn, to see what we ought to see, and to learn that the, what often sounds like a strange phrase, to learn to obey the stories of the Lord. So God, teach us from the example of David Teach us to treasure and love your spirit. God, may we we be aligned with, may we belong to holy, our King Jesus, who nourishes his people, who protects his people, and who gathers his people. In your name we pray, amen. After last last week's summary of the first 20 chapters of 1 Samuel, we're going to turn now to the next two, chapters 21 and 22. Um, and, uh, and before we begin, I want to set in front of us a, a, a sort of foundation, foundational piece that I would, I would like you to be observing as we work our way through the rest of 1 Samuel, and particularly this interplay between David and between Saul. Um, if you remember back in chapter 16, the end of 16, the beginning of 17, um, the, the text of Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God was removed from Saul and came upon David and rested upon David the rest of the days of his life. And there is um, within modern evangelicalism, and, and, and perhaps depending on what background you have, if you have no church background, um, this is all going to be strange to you. Um, if you've come from different backgrounds, uh, we, we have a, a, a pretty gross misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Spirit among God's people and what that means, what that looks like, how that works itself out um, over the course of history and the life of God's people together in the world. Um, We have begun to think of the Spirit of God as, um, in certain quarters of the evangelicalism, merely a feeling. Um, We equate the presence of the Spirit with a certain feeling in our hearts, Um, and and so we we, we just look for that feeling in us, um, which is an interesting um, turn. Since the Spirit of God is the presence of God among his people, 
It seems to me borderline blasphemous that we would define the work of the Spirit as something that we look inside to determine. Um, And secondly, there's a bunch of us from the Reformed tradition who oftentimes have forgotten to speak of the work of the Spirit at all. Um, And yet, this work of the Spirit of God is not a New Testament, merely a New Testament reality. There's been an expansion of his work, but his presence is all over the place in the Old Testament, um, of which we have much to learn about how the Spirit of God works in our present age. One of the primary themes that's going to get developed through chapter, from chapter 17 all the way to chapter 30 is this, um, this comparison between the Spirit of God abiding in David and what that leads him to do and how it leads him to act over opposed to the departure of the Spirit of God from Saul and how that leads him to act. And most notably and important for us, we're going to talk about this more extensively in a minute, how that how that distinction, that difference, uh, leads to a, a, a kind of envy at, at the foundation of who Saul is and how he relates to David. Um, that, that Saul not possessing the spirit, Saul in rebellion against the rule of God, Saul exercising a kind of tyranny over the people of God and over against his servant David, um, is driven by envy. And what's fascinating, and fascinating as we begin to think about the implications of that, as we think about our world today, is, is oftentimes what you're witnessing in the world in terms of the hatred of um, those who do not know God towards those who do know God is counterintuitively envy. A, a beholding of the blessings of God's spirit among God's people and all that that produces and, and a a desire to have that, while at the same time hating God. That's why I say it's counterintuitive. That leads to a kind of hatred towards the people of God. This theme is going to get explored through the rest of First Samuel, and it lay really at the foundation of, kind of underneath the things that begin to hap- that, that, that unfold for us in chapters twenty-one and twenty-two. So consider the work of the Spirit as we look at these chapters, not not just this week, but in the coming weeks. Um, One of the interesting contrasts, we've talked in the past about how Samuel sets up um, numerous contrasts between Saul and David, Samuel and Eli, um, and also Saul and Jonathan. Um, One of the main themes developing in um, in the character of Jonathan, whom we're not really going to, his name's going to pop up here and there through the rest of the book, but we're not going to see him um, in action, really at all, through the rest of the book. Uh, but one of the main themes going on uh, in 17 through 20 is that Jonathan recognizes the anointing of God's spirit on David, that, that, that David has, um, possesses the spirit of God, the spirit of God has been poured out on David to rule, and one of the differences between Saul and Jonathan is Jonathan's ability to recognize that and respond rightly to it, to, to love the presence of the spirit with his friend David. Whereas Saul sees the presence of the Spirit upon David and hates David, seeks to kill David, he is driven mad with envy. But now I want us to look at um, this, this story that unfolds in chapters 21 and 22. We're actually going to, I want to walk through the whole narrative of 21 and 22. A number of different things happen. And then what we're going to do is take uh, three different observations, three implications 
of what happens in this story and consider how, how, how we might believe these things and obey these things. Um, chapter 20, 21 begins with David, if you remember in chapter 20, fleeing from the presence of Saul. He's warned by Jonathan, and, and he comes to the city of Nob. Um, Nob there is uh, a, a priestly city, and the priests are there offering worship and sacrifices to God. Um, so David ne- um, flees there to Nob, and he goes there specifically to get some bread and to get some weapons. Um, What's going to happen there in the rest of chapter 21, it's built around two different deceptions um, that David puts forward. Um, And it's an interesting uh, side thing to consider. Um, The Bible doesn't teach us that that all lying is intrinsically bad. Um, Nowhere in this text uh, does it tell us that David is sinning against the Lord um, through the deceptions that he's offering here. One of the themes that we're going to look at in a minute, it is the, um, the, the application of or receiving of the law of God. Um, David puts forward two deceptions. One, um, that, that deception is a gift to this priest. It is an attempt to give the priest um, an out. Now, before I go much further, kids, as you're sitting there and you just heard one thing from the sermon and you're tempted, perhaps, to hold on to that one thing, it sounds like Pastor Brian said that lying isn't always bad. Um, if you go home today and you lie to your parents, that is bad. We'll talk about the conditions under which lying isn't bad in just a moment. Um, but please don't take that home and let me get a call from your mom on, or father on Monday telling me that my son lied to me because Pastor Brian said I could. I didn't say that. Um, so David goes to this priest. He puts forward a deception saying he's sent by Saul on a secret mission, um, and on this secret mission, uh, he needs some bread. Um, the, uh, the priest there asks him some key questions um, about the holiness of the men that are with David. David uh, testifies that those men are holy. They've been, um, they've been set apart for battle, and, uh, and they've been set apart as a holy army in the Lord. Um, the priest then agrees, gives them some bread, and David asks if he has any weapons because he'd had to leave um, Saul so quickly. And the only weapon that the priest has is the sword of Goliath. Um, and I like David's response. There's none like that sword. Give it to me. Um, and so we have David lying to the priest. The reason he's lying to the priest is to give the priest um, a, a viable answer. Should Saul come calling and hear what's going on, um, he can with honestly say, I thought he was working for you. I thought he was on a mission from you, so of course I helped him on the way. The second deception that happens in chapter 21 is that David goes to Gath. Interesting, he has Goliath's sword, and he goes to Goliath's hometown. And there in Gath, um, among the enemies of God, David um, takes on uh, the role of a madman, um, letting drool fall on his beard. So don't drool on your beard. Um, that would be one of the takeaways from there. Um, he, he recognized the enemies of God might see him rightly um, as a potential threat to them, and so he acts as a madman um, and then leaves, and he's protected through that action. Um, as he leaves Gath, uh, the next chapter, chapter 22, um, sees David um, fleeing to the cave of Agilom. Um, Agilom there uh, is um, kind of famously it's misused often uh, in various songs and bands and even church names I knew one time. He goes there and gathering to David are uh, a whole bunch of outcasts. 
Um, and, and the text tells us that gathering to David there, and it comes up to about 400 men later in, in a few chapters, we're going to see that number swells to 600. Um, gathering to him are all sorts of troubled folk. Um, some of these people are undoubtedly people who have been sinned against, people who um, have bad things have happened to them, persecution has happened to them, trouble has happened to them, perhaps Saul has happened to them. Uh, but also among, us, uh, among this number, the text tells us, are a whole bunch of worthless fellows. Worthless folks gathering to David in the wilderness, um, forming a new Israel. David then takes care of his parents um, and is told by a prophet there uh, that he should go back into uh, the land of Judah. So he departs and he goes back into Judah. Um, Saul hears now that, J- that David's around. He hears kind of uh, uh, some reports of where David is. And so David then go, uh, uh, Saul then goes uh, and begins to berate those around him. He begins to berate the court of people around him. Um, and a couple of things to point out in this um, narrative. Um, one, he begins to remind them of all the lands that he's giving them, the roles and the offices that he's giving them. Um, he has begun to do the very thing that Samuel warned um, that kings would do. He begins to use his position of power to unjustly uh, delegate and give to those whom um, are his favorites, those whom he wants to be loyal to him. Um, There he begins to accuse his son of conspiring against him. And he begins to uh, accuse those of, of knowing what's going on and refusing to get behind him. What you've seen here is a man who is anxious, a man who is terrified, um, a, a man who is jealous. And um, like all jealous, tyrannical leaders do, um, they make their own emotions, they make their own life, they make their own power um, the, uh, the point of calling those around them to feel sorry for them. Um, kings and leaders um, are called to stand in the breach for, on behalf of their people, Uh, But here you have Saul reversing that role and asking the people why they're not standing in the breach for him. Um, Then he gets word from Doeg. One other side takeaway, you shouldn't name your child Doeg. It's free. I don't know if you were thinking about it, but Doeg is a bad name and he's a bad man. I I think you can just tell the moment he appears in this story. Whoever the bad guy is, it's Doeg because of his name. And uh, Doeg comes and reports to the king what Ahimelech the priest has done on behalf of David. The king then um, sends for Ahimelech and all the priests of Nob to come to him. And no trial, no consideration of evidence. Saul simply declares uh, by his own authority and power. Again, we, we saw clues that Saul was beginning to take on this sort of idolatrous role of king. The exact thing that Samuel warned the people about. And here Saul is doing it. Not hearing out and seeking out true justice, but accusing Ahimelech of treason. And orders the men around him to kill Ahimelech. And to the people around him's credit, at least in the first place, they refuse to do so. Um, But then, of course, there's Doeg. He turns to Doeg, orders him to kill Ahimelech. He kills Ahimelech kills the rest of the priests, and he carries out the ban on the city of Nob. A couple of points there. Um, You'll notice uh, this parallel is very intentional in the book of Samuel. Uh, Saul was ordered by God um, to carry out 
the ban against the Philistines, carry out the ban against God's enemies, and he refused. Um, Here, uh, not under command of God, he carries out the ban, carries out the work of God's judgment and destruction upon the priests of God and their city. One of the sons gets away, flees to David. The text ends with David saying to the priest's son, stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So there's the story. What should we take away from it? What should we hear? I want to draw our attention to three things. Three things to learn from this text and to obey in this text. First, um, it's always important... (laughs) Uh, when an Old Testament text is explained and taught to us in the New Testament, that we take the time to go to the New Testament and listen to how the New Testament un- unveils and um, reveals to us what's going on in the Old Testament text. And so um, the text here, the beginning of David going to eat this bread, um, is actually taught to us by Jesus. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. There Jesus addresses this story And tells us something that we must see in it. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how, the Sabbath, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Here's the principle, the idea that I I pray that we would hear and see. You will not understand how to obey the law of God if you do not see what the law of God is for. It's become common in our day to, to take this text from Matthew chapter 12 and to believe that what Jesus is teaching is that we can largely disregard the law of God. That is not what Jesus is teaching. He is not telling us like, hey, the Sabbath law is there, it's generally a good command, but you don't really need to pay attention to it. He he is telling us that if you don't understand what the principle driving the law of God is meant to do, meant to accomplish, you'll never rightly apply, apply the law of God. As one commentator said this week as I was reading, um, the law of God is not built out of two-by-fours. He doesn't give us a rigid structure, but a rigid structure. Rather, what God gives us in the law is, um, is what has become uh, known in our day as common law or case law. Um, the, the law of God comes to us and God establishes principles to be applied in different ways to different circumstances. You can actually see this implemented by King Alfred, um, my ancestor. 
Um, King Alfred uh, in England through the establishment of common law. Um, this is what our legal system was meant to be built on, um, and it is something that is not understood by anyone, um, hardly by anyone in our day, in which we try to take laws and we build more and more and more and more and more and more and more laws to try to legislate every possible, um, every possible circumstance, every possible situation, to create rigidity, to create um, rules, rather than understanding that what God has given us in his law is, um, is it ever, I'll put it this way, has it ever dawned on you that God has given us 10 commandments? Not like 4 million commandments. Not like multiple volumes of commandments, but ten of them. Everything else in the law of God is, is working out specific case laws, specific ways of applying those ten commandments to different circumstances, different situations. And so if you go to the law of God and, and you see David deceiving the priest first as a, as a friendly act, on behalf of the priest, and then deceiving um, the king of Gath as a, a means of protecting himself and his men. If you treat the law of God woodenly, you'll go to these stories and you'll condemn David for something the word of God never condemns him for. You'll condemn David for eating bread that he wasn't authorized to eat. You'll condemn priests for baking bread they were commanded to bake. In other words, you'll work yourself in a conundrum that doesn't understand what the law is for. Jesus tells us what the law is for. He says in Matthew 12 that something greater is here. In other words, the thing that the Sabbath pointed to is actually standing there. Um, the thing that uh, the, the bread of the presence was pointing to, is standing there. You see, the purpose of God's law, the principles guiding and undergirding God's law um, uh, are meant to point us to its fulfillment in Jesus and point us to principles that then need to be applied in different ways and in different circumstances and different situations. In this case, David is at war under the conditions of war. His life is being threatened. He's being pursued um, both by the Lord's anointed, King Saul, um, and by the enemies of God's people. And you, you, you work yourself into a weird conundrum when you begin to woodenly apply the law of God to these situations. One easy example is, um, are you opposed to camouflage on tanks? I guess Deception. It's a lie. And and this is how the law of God works. It establishes principles, and those principles um, are are meant to be uh, to guide our application of the law in um, in every circumstance that we face. This isn't a, a kind of mercy that treats the law as unimportant, as a small thing. But instead, it's a mercy that stands on the law of God and with wisdom and faith applies the law of God in different circumstances differently. More 
scorn has been heaped on the law of God by people misapplying and not loving the principles that God gives us in the law, but rather um, in really wooden and unnatural and unfaithful ways, applying the law to situations um, that have very little to do with the principles that God gives us in the law. Something greater than the, present, than the bread of the presence is standing in the presence of the bread of the presence, asking to eat it. David, the great, great, great grandfather of our Lord, the one who is the very presence of God, is there. And so he eats the bread. He deceives the priest for the sake of the good of the priest, not for the harm of the priest. And he deceives a king to keep his men and himself safe. And if you wouldn'tly apply the law of God to both of these stories, you'll condemn David for protecting the priest. And you'll condemn David for not putting his, his men in danger. It's the first thing to see and to think about and to consider how we might apply the law of God in line with the purpose of the law of God and not just woodenly with two by fours. Second thing to see, there's two different kings at work in this text. And so it is that there are only two different kings, two different kinds of kings that you can serve in this world. There is a king who seeks to destroy and crush and annihilate the people of God. And there is a king who accepts and receives and blesses and protects the people of God. And there is no third way. There's no escaping the antithesis at the heart of Scripture. There is always and only the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There is always and only those who live by faith and those who live in rebellion. There is always and only those um, who pursue the glory of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the, the holiness of God and those who hate the righteousness of God, hate the justice of God, hate the beauty of God and the glory of God. And there is no middle way. There is no peace between the two. David begins to form a new Israel around himself um, at the cave of Agilom as those um, gather to him. And that, that's a whole sticky situation we'll get into in just a minute. Um, but the other thing going on in this story is a king who wages um, unholy war against the very priests of God and their, their wives and their children and their animals. Now someone might point out this group of people around Saul who refuse to kill the priests. And so you might think, well, here's a third way. They're not with David. They're still with Saul. They're still friends with the secularists, they're still friends with those who don't love God and don't worship God and don't treasure God. They're still there. They're just refusing to participate in the evil. Isn't that a third way? Um, they haven't departed to go out into the wilderness with David and they haven't left Saul. They're still there and they're still you know, trying to do good. They're refusing to participate in evil. Where were they when Doeg took up his sword? 
There is no neutrality in the world. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to Saul. You either worship Jesus and know the mercy of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God and pursue it with all of your might. Or you are at war with all of the good and glory and beauty and truth in the world. For decades now, Christians desperate to be close to Saul have refused to name evil going on everywhere around us. Have refused to to, to point out rebellion against God and sure, they they don't participate in the evil. Um, They don't participate in abortion. They don't participate in the sexual immorality but they do not proclaim faithfully the goodness of God and the law of God and the justice of God. There is no third way. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm so thankful that you're here. But you have been, all of us have been raised in a culture to believe that there is a kind of neutrality that exists in the world. And what the scriptures teach is that there is no neutral space. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to your father, the devil. And there is mercy in Jesus. And there is grace in Jesus. And there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And there is the very spirit of God in Jesus. There is no neutrality. So one of the questions at the heart of chapters 21 and 22 is, who is your king? Is it Saul waging an unholy war against the ministers of God, against the people of God, against the righteousness of God, against the worship of God, against the reign of God? Or is it with David in the wilderness? It's interesting, in Matthew, we looked at Matthew chapter 12 earlier. Two chapters later, Matthew 14, um, there is a meal happening there with two kings. You have King Herod in a banqueting room with a feast, murdering John the Baptist, devouring John the Baptist. And right next to it, you have Jesus out in the wilderness like David, feeding 5,000 with bread from heaven. Would you rather be near to the banqueting room or are you willing to be in exile with Jesus? I, I do think this is one of the most important questions in our day. Increasingly, it seems, To be faithful to Jesus, to trust in his gospel, to believe his word, to stand for those things and to eat those things and to receive those things and to believe those things. 
will cost you the banqueting room. It will cause you in a city like Denver, one of the most pagan cities in our country, it will cause you, there's no, there's no avoiding it, to just stand out, not because you're hateful and mean, but because you're, you love Jesus and you treasure Jesus and you trust his words. And what you need to know is that will keep you out of the banqueting table. It will keep you out from acceptance and, and, um, and, and kind of fitting in in a culture like ours. But do not think for a moment that you can navigate this city and this world from a neutral space. In many ways, what's happening in our culture, while it's tragic, is a gift from the Lord. Because we've been able to lie to one another for the last several decades in a place like Denver to pretend like you can be neutral here. You can love Jesus, you can avoid evil, and you can get along great with the enemies of God. But increasingly, in, under God's providence, we've come to a moment where the question stands, do you want the banqueting table of Herod, or do you want to feast with Jesus in the wilderness? Will you belong to Saul just to stand next to him, try to avoid as much as you can, the evil going on around you, receiving the gifts that Saul gives, like all tyrants do? Or will you flee to the wilderness? Go to the king. Last observation. Numerous commentators point out that one of the things that's unfolding in the first half of chapter 22 is the formation of a new Israel, a new people of God uh, around the person of David. What's fascinating is how the text describes those people. David departed, starting in verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Ajalon. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What you have here is a potentially deeply problematic situation. <laughs> So who is gathering to this new Israel around its new king? His father's house, that's good. His brothers, that's good. Especially considering the last time we saw his brothers with Goliath. But also, everyone who is in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul. I, I think oftentimes churches face this problem. I think oftentimes... Um, particularly church plants, face this problem. You get a bunch of people together who are mad at all the other churches. They're bitter in soul. So you go and you set out to start a new church and you've got a church full of people who are in debt. So giving is not real good. And then you have a whole bunch of people who are bitter in soul. And the, the interesting thing is, is when you go into any community, including this one, and there's a number of new folk here today, and if you come into a community and you come with bitterness of soul, Guess what you bring? Bitterness of soul. 
Um, and, and some of these people have probably done wrong. Some of these people are in debt because they've made foolish decisions. Some of these people um, are undoubtedly in debt because of wrongful, unjust laws. Um, some of these people are bitter because of how they've responded to their own sins. Some of these people are bitter because of sin that's been done to them. But, but it still creates the same problem in that community. And so there is at the heart of this community, which is stunning and good, a king and God and his providence gathering around him, his family, gathering around him, his brothers, um, who, if you'll remember just a handful of chapters ago, um, were angry at David because of David going to war with Goliath. Um, So there's definitely some complexity um, going on, at least with his family. And you have those who are in debt, those who have been oppressed, those who um, also those who are in sin, those who have been sinned against, and they're all gathering together around David. David's going to have to navigate carefully what's going on there. But what I want us to see as I close is how God forms his people. Because you see, gathering in this room today is a bunch of people who sinned this week. I'm sure some of you have a great deal of debt. I'm sure some of you have come in this room carrying maybe sound reasons, potential reasons, for which you carry about bitterness. Some of you are, as the text will describe this group later, worthless fellows. Sorry, if you're new, it's probably not you. But you might be. Some of you have been unfaithful to your spouse this week. Some of you um, have been harsh with your spouse or your children this week. Some of you have stolen things. Some of you have looked at pornography. Some of you have rebelled against God um, and and, and refused to acknowledge God and love God. And and, and the, the glory is that God calls us in his mercy together to confess our sins. And the only place to be gathered, the only place to come with all of that trash, with all of that sin, with all of that bitterness, with all of that brokenness and debt, to come out to the wilderness to this particular king. And there, in the providence of God and in the mercy of God, he forgives our sins. He cleanses us of those sins. And we find ourselves belonging to our king, Jesus. Armed and called to stand with him. Not because you've got a lot of wealth. Not because you have a sound righteousness of your own. And not because you have handled all of the ways you've been sinned against perfectly. But rather because there is nowhere else to go but Jesus. And there we find forgiveness. There we find cleansing. And there we find the anointing, the presence of the Spirit of God. And so he calls us to come it will cost you there are some perks to being next to Saul there are some perks to feasting in the banqueting room of Herod but there you will be left with your bitterness there you will be left with your sin and so Jesus bids us come come and to receive from him the bread of heaven 
come and to receive from him the spirit of the living God. Come and receive from him forgiveness of sins. Let's pray and prepare for communion.